Hello and welcome to Fibonacci, the Red Olive Data Podcast, all about data and analytics, where we hear from leading specialists and get their take on the industry. I'm your host, Nikki Rudd. Today, I'm joined by James Gardner, Head of Data Technology for Admiral Insurance. James has nearly 25 years of working with data and has been at Admiral for the past seven years, lately managing its move from on-premise to the cloud. He was a data consultant for 15 years before joining Admiral, working in the telecoms and finance industries, where he consulted on data solutions for companies including Lloyd's, Barclays, Nokia and WS Atkins. We discussed data governance, moving to the cloud and the art of the possible in data projects. Let's find out more. Let's start off with telling me how you got into the world of data. What was your journey in? I finished my degree in digital systems engineering way back, oh, God, that's 27 years ago, I think. My thesis at the time was doing things with image tracking, tracking objects within images and following them and things like that. So I started getting into what was basically a bit of machine learning. So it's what they call linear regression. And I started getting interested in that. And when I came out of university, I actually landed my first job was for a print inspection company. They were doing vision analysis on print runs. So this could be anything. This could be wallpaper, newspapers, anything like that. And what they wanted to do was build a system that identified differences in color trends while the press was moving so they didn't have to stop. Saves them a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera. So I went in there and I started coding in C++ to do some simple machine learning algorithms and things like that that they could then apply to the equipment that they sent out that was bolted to these massive printing presses. Now, I did that for about a year. And unfortunately, it was a very small company. There was only like about 12 of us. And there was really nowhere for me to go in there. So my options were quite limited. I eventually joined a graduate scheme for Welsh Water as part of their software division. And they put me through loads of training with Capgemini and all that. They really invested in me. I ended up being a junior DBA, SQL Server. So I did that for about two years and eventually got out of the junior position, became one of the development DBAs there and things like that. And then unfortunately, I got made redundant, as did hundreds of other people on this project. You know, it goes as typical project, just got shut down. And so from there, I actually went to work for a telecoms company up in Nottingham. And I used to work three weeks at home and one week in the office there. Basically, I was building and designing databases for them to hold test data for their mobile devices and things like that. They used to have big contracts with, at the time, Nokia, Ericsson, and and places like that, testing their handsets. And they always used to do a high level of reporting on that test data. And I eventually sort of got into that. And I was there for probably another two years. And then... I got made redundant again, believe it or not. I got I got made redundant again. The bottom dropped out of the mobile industry and I got made redundant. And so I was looking around then for another job. And there wasn't many permanent places in South Wales. So I eventually landed a contract with WS Atkins where I basically started looking at the data for the road network. So basically this is the M4. So on the M4, 
you have hundreds of sensors underneath the road that basically look at traffic flows, look at the speed of the traffic and things like that. And they actually control the automated signs. So when you're on the motorway and it says, oh, slow down to 50 and things like that, it's normally because there's something, there's slow traffic up ahead, like it could be a mile ahead. One of my jobs was to take that data and actually mine it and start looking at where all the congestion was on the roads and things like that. And eventually this would sort of go into road planning. So they go, all right, okay, we need to open up another slip road here. We need to do another bypass here and things like that. So it used to look at all these congestion and things like that. Again, another two years there as a contractor. And then I landed another contract at PHS, which then does the washrooms and things like that. I built a financial data warehouse for them. It was probably the first proper data warehouse I built. I was there for a couple of years, and then I went out to the finance industry. I had all this data warehousing sort of finance knowledge. And I went to a number of places. There was Lloyd's, there was Barclays, Barclay Card, lots of places like that. I also found myself in Nokia. I was there for four years with Nokia Music, again, as a consultant, building financial data warehouses for them. I was also with Principality Building Society. I was there for another four years, again, building financial data warehouses and things like that, and putting in teams that could basically deliver these measures that the business wanted. And then eventually I got a bit sick of contracting and I wanted to have a bit more power, have a bit more leadership responsibility and things like that. So I joined Admiral and I joined Admiral about seven and a half years ago now. Since then, I've made it my home. I'm very happy to be there. That's the longest stint. (laughs) It is. It is definitely the longest stint. Normally, I get a bit fed up and sort of move on. But then again, I was a consultant as well. So, but Admiral, yeah, I've been with Admiral for quite some time now. And I'm currently the head of technology for data for Admiral. And what that means is that it's all about capabilities. I look after most of the data people and I I construct workable, agile teams for data. And as I said, it's all about capabilities. It's all about pushing down that engineering mentality to the people on the floor to make them think about data and not just or just code in a way here that there's a whole big world and you really got to understand the bigger picture and these sort of things. And that and that's kind of what I do now to this day. It's got a lot bigger, a lot quicker, because obviously the demand is just sky high. So now I basically lead and instruct those teams on how to fulfill Admiral's data requests. And that's where I am now. And I was going to say that actually, even in the last, you know, sort of seven years that you've been there, you must have seen some massive changes. We'll talk a little bit about the big project that's kind of moving from on-premise to cloud. But what things do you think have been drivers over the last sort of five and a bit years to really push that technology and that sort of data as a kind of key building block of how the business moved forward? There's sort of two sides to the insurance industry and every insurance company. I believe, looks at things like that. And first, they'll look at things like value streams and in terms of, right, pricing. We need to get the best and fairest prices for our customers. And then the second is claims. You need to get the best claim service, but also you have to be aware of things like fraud, which costs a lot of money, which is, you know, as the industry has blossomed, so are the bad guys as well, okay? So there's a lot of that out there as well. But also just 
essentially giving people the data to make good decisions and it's got to be good quality data and obviously that's not always the case but yeah i've seen it move from very sort of static data sets that only get updated sort of once a day to basically data sets that are essentially getting updated several times a day and then you have streaming data and things like that and real-time alerting and things like that if you can do things like plumb that into your business processes so that your agents on the phone have really good information about the customer that they are actually talking to i can actually change or offer new products and things like that while they're on the phone to them then i think that's something we've seen in the last couple of years that's been huge do you think it's been a sort of technology push or do you think it's been a leadership push and a sort of a mindset? Because I think insurance is obviously seen or has been seen as a very traditional sort of setup and traditional business. Has it been the sort of people that have kind of made the move or has it been just the fact that actually there's been advances in how you can work with the data to give you that reporting and that insight? I think it's been a bit of everything, to be honest. I think people have realised what the art of the possible is. So this is where you get your stream and these embedded processes, these ML models and things like that that can make decisions, you know, help the agent to make decisions on pricing and on a customer. There's that part of it. And I think leadership have recognized that. And obviously you can't fail to ignore things like that, you know, with the big players, your Googles and your, your Amazons and things like that. Obviously there's an ethics thing that comes into it. There's only certain things we're allowed to do. But you've got that side of the coin, and then you've got the other side of the coin, which we now have these fantastic systems that can handle large amounts of data. And if you're a data scientist or a pricing analyst or or anything like that, you're continually looking for other things to basically give that customer the best price. Or you may be looking at things that actually go, well, this guy's a bad driver here. He may not have made any claims, but other things have happened. There's only so much we could do, obviously, but other things, they're a higher risk. So therefore, they deserve a higher premium. And it's about protecting ourselves as well as our customers and things like that. So it's a bit of everything, really. And you can't ignore this change in architectures and in technology as we've gone through time like this. When you're thinking about all these changes, how do you go about kind of thinking this is what we're going to do first and actually the next steps? First off, the experience will tell you the pitfalls. And it depends what type of data project you're really starting. Because what you generally start with is some sort of POC to prove out the technology, prove out an idea, make sure it's quite ring-fenced and your uh, acceptance criteria are quite you know well understood and measurable. So I think it starts with that. And then you have to look at the personas, who's going to be accessing this data, whether or not it's a machine that's accessing the data, you know, a person, an agent, and things like that. And you, you kind of have to list those out and you have to go and actually talk to people. A lot of what my guys do is that they're very heavily welded in with the business. A lot of business people actually sit within our delivery teams to help and advise and go, that's right, that's not right. These are the questions we need to be asking. Exactly. And I think that's really important. That's kind of how we start. And obviously, you know, you've got to get your architecture right. There are internal processes for that and things like that. You know, it can be a bit frustrating sometimes and things like that. But 
that's the way of the world. But essentially, yeah, I think that's what you start with. You go, right, what's the scope of this? Who are the people accessing this data? All those personas and things like that. What technology platforms are we looking at to build this? What capabilities do we need to run some POCs and things like that? And also costs is a massive one as well. Everyone's tightening their belts at the moment. So what is the cheapest solution? But the best solution overall that we can basically grow and we can maintain properly and support properly. They're all things that need thinking about you generally drag in a lot of people into that process. But I think that's where it starts. And then you start thinking about also people from a delivery perspective. Have I got the right capabilities? Do I need to get some contractors in? What does that do to the bottom line? All this sort of type stuff. So even though I'm quite technical, it does start a level above and you really have to get those things right first and a good outset and everyone needs to understand why we're doing what we're doing i think yeah it's the old start with the why i think that's really important for us you know the amount of times you've had a coder or something just all right okay so do you understand what you're doing here because well i know what i've got to get this data from here to here yeah but why are you doing that no i don't really know and that doesn't work and i think I think it's good to have those meetings and explain the fundamental aims of what you're trying to do and in what context. And then everyone can really get on board and feel like a part of it. Those are the things we really start with. But then obviously the next phase then is let's do it. Okay. And that's when you have to organize teams. You have to start, you know, work very agile. So we break everything into stories and things like that. Everything gets sized up. Again, you're still looking constantly at the capabilities. Have we got enough people from networks to plumb this in? It's not just a data, you know, I just need data engineers. It's all sorts of disciplines across the board. And I think that's where you start, basically. You, at the moment, obviously have moved from on-premise to cloud as, I suppose, the biggest project in more recent times, I'm guessing. What sort of challenges has that thrown up? Have there been things that you've had to consider differently than perhaps having an on-premise you know, sort of We're still halfway through that at the moment. There's a lot of work. There's always something to do. But security is the big one. I think with our on-premise networks, there's a little bit of a safety blanket. It's not all safe. Do you know what I mean? It's not, you know, if someone wants to get in, they can probably get in. But it's a lot easier to deploy things knowing that you have things ring-fenced and people won't be able to exploit them. So security is a massive one because when you push it up into the cloud, it's so easy to just make something public by mistake and things like that. So we do spend a lot of time on security and making sure everything's encrypted in transit and encrypted at rest and all this. And you do find, though, a lot of the cloud services that all this kind of happens by default, but you still got to check it out and make sure it's within your standards if you like. So security was a massive one. The other things to consider is governance, which changes drastically as well when you go into cloud, because it's so easy for things to get out of control. Because of the power of cloud, 
essentially is something that I've learned that I haven't learned before is that you can push data up into cloud and give everyone access, but God, it becomes, it becomes a massive minefield, you know, and it turns into the wild west if you're not careful. So you really have to basically keep an eye on that governance, making sure that people have only got access to the data that they need to do their day-to-day job. And I think that's very important. It's always important on-premise as well, but with the power of the cloud and what people can do, it can really get out of control so quickly. There are a number of things that I consider, but one thing else I'd like to say is that if you've got good governance and good lineage of your current on-premise systems, it becomes a lot easier to go to cloud because you understand how the data is getting used. It all goes back to those personas again, who's using it. It's all documented and things like that. And in that case, it's a lot easier to move and replicate and put those same controls in. So it's important to get it right wherever you are. So yes, cloud does make a difference, but you really should be putting these rules in place throughout, no matter where you are. I think it's interesting you say that because obviously there's great opportunities with cloud and there's, you know, the speed and the kind of like the openness, as you say. But yeah, a lesson learned <laughs> from something in the cloud is probably a harder lesson than if it's actually still just an internal system and sort of a bit more closed down. Have you had to do kind of quite a lot of training or sessions with your team to kind of get them thinking differently with those points and those challenges? So there's always technical training. That's a given. But like I said, it's having that engineering mindset. Okay. Admiral's a very young company. We've got a lot of young people working there, come straight out of university and we kind of train them up and things like that. And they need to understand the repercussions of things going wrong. We have processes and things like that to control that, but we'll generally give them that insight into failing systems a lot of the time, because you have to code to have resilience and make things robust. So quite often we'll have reviews of code and go, right, okay, what happens if that thing goes wrong? And it goes, oh, well, it retries here. Okay, all right, that's great. It retries, but does it clean up the mess it made when it went wrong? It's things like that. So it's having an engineering mindset. And a lot of what I try to put into context is that, look, would you put an aircraft in the sky if you built it like that? What if something failed on the aircraft? Is there a backup system? How does it get maintained? How does it get checked? There's warning lights and things like that that you get. Have you got the same warning lights and things like that in the code and the data pipelines that you've put in to this system? That's why it's important to monitor because everyone's brought up with this CICD mentality. And a lot of CICD doesn't work when you have a data project going on. And this is why you have data ops instead of DevOps, because it's not only the code that has to go through that process, it's the actual data itself. And you can get bad data. So your code may be the best code written in the world, but you get some bad data into it and everything can fall down. And so you have to have these checks. You have to have this live monitoring and things like that. And that's where I find machine learning is actually coming in to play because you can actually apply machine learning to that monitoring to actually go, oh, you know, this premium looks low today or or on this percentage of measures or things like that. And you can actually get machine learning to actually invoke that alert and then somebody can react to it and things like that. So although we look at machine learning as 
oh yeah, it's going to help this, going to make them better profile my customers and things like that. There's so many more applications throughout the whole data pipeline, if you like, and that data flow that I think sometimes people ignore that. It's like turn the skills on its head and use the machine learning to help make your systems as robust and get your data as clean and as quality as possible. I think it's interesting you said that because I was just about to ask you about machine learning and ethics because you'd mentioned that. And I think there is that, yes, you can think about it from a technology point of view and, and stuff moving very, very quickly. But that role of a person in there just checking and putting in the perimeters of kind of this is going to be safe or this is ethical or this is actually what we mean by good data and actually the checks and the processes is still very important. Are there any particular trends or kind of ways of working that you can really see how that would jumpstart or that would, you know, really, really push a different way of thinking? Well, there's a number of new ways of rolling out data teams and rolling out data architectures and things like that. One of them being mesh. There's this concept of the mesh architecture. And God, you really got to be mature for some of this stuff. And you really have to have those engineering principles embedded because the whole concept of mesh is that you decentralize basically. Okay. And you farm that out to value streams and things like that. Now, traditionally, I mean, it's been like a data warehouse team and they've done all your data and they've ingested it and things like that, but they could become a blocker. They become a blocker because they can only prioritize so much. And someone over here in, I don't know, household insurance wants to do some stuff and they can't. So what you try and do is you try and farm out those capabilities to other value streams. But that can be difficult unless you've got some blueprints for this central governance because you want everything to work the same way so you can maintain it there's definitely some things in the delivery space that are being suggested everyone talks about mesh i went to big data london this year and everyone was talking about mesh but no one's really nailed it and it's the same thing with machine learning you get a pricing analyst thinking oh right okay we've got a good machine learning model here we've trained it well right we've got to get it live but because it's hooked into the whole quoting process and things are like really got to be careful that that is correct. And so it can take a long time sometimes for these things to get live. And this is where you have things like MLOps springing up, okay? So it's not about the model itself and the machine learning model itself. It's more about how quickly can you get that value into the mainstream. So this is what MLOps has given us. Essentially, it's a set of governance rules, really, that I think data scientists aren't used to dealing with that data scientists are in their own little world they're in a bubble and things like that now they have to think in terms of engineering and what matters what if this model goes wrong that sort of thing they have to think about that so it has everything has to be thoroughly tested and that takes time so although you've got this whole oh yeah ml ops ai and things like that you have to determine the risk of certain things and if you start relying too much on it without having that whole framework around it that gives you that robustness you could be in a lot of trouble i was going to say the kind of reporting and that like you say having different people with different roles and responsibilities across that sort of data pipeline if you like how do you go about making that reporting 
and that kind of auditing and the reporting seamless for everybody at the works because it's such a big thing isn't it that actually you could break it down and make it so that you're working in pockets but that actually would completely blow the overall aim of having this kind of have you got particularly with admiral kind of ways of working that you think you've nailed that or have there been questions that you've along the way thought actually if we ask this with these certain people we are going to have a better outcome at the end I think, again, it's mindset is a lot of it. So, yes, you can have these different teams and they're all working on different things. But, again, we go back to why. Okay, why are you doing this? You're an essential part of the cog, an essential cog, sorry, not essential part, that is basically going to deliver this value at the end and you're an essential part of it. And I think if people understand that, they generally start to go out and communicate and i think that's what it is it's all about good solid lines of communication and obviously that's what agile gives you with the stand-ups your retrospectives and things like that this is what i'm heavily involved in is that you know if something's not working you change it that's the whole point nothing's etched in stone if something's not performing or something went wrong at the end of the last delivery or whatever, you change it. And communication is a big factor in that. So when you have teams and you have them in those silos and they're not communicating, you'll find that they're not going to line up at the end of your sprint or whatever your delivery mechanism is. You have to change it. So we get people to work together. That's the key. And communications is hard when we're all working remote and things like that but it's still achievable very much so but it is about comms no one wants to come in and write something bad that doesn't work at the end of it okay but they didn't know they were just sort of carrying on so it's important to get sort of strong leaders to bring people together and actually go this is what we're doing this is how we're doing it everyone clear what they're doing yes yeah in the morning and stuff like that if you're not come see me we'll go and speak to someone else or whatever like that that's kind of how it needs to work within the data teams at admiral i think we've cracked that i think we have we try to modulize as much as we can so somebody doesn't write a code for specific things they write it for many things that can basically be used by another team so we try and write these modules and and frameworks for people to work in rather than i'm just writing code and i think that's what helps and there's also a lot of unit test checking and things like that there's a lot of automation that you can basically put in and we do this at our retros and things like that we went right that went wrong didn't it last time Okay, what are we going to do about it? Right, we can put an automated check-in for that. So as soon as someone deploys something into a test environment, runs a host of unit test scripts or things like that, and goes, eh, 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 no, that ain't going to work with this. So we can build that in. And we quite often do that. Don't capture everything because it is hard. Data is hard. I'll tell you that now. But if you have that mindset and that ways of working and that monitoring mindset and that robustness, that engineering mindset, you can overcome it. Do you think that the governance is kind of more stable or more solid because of that understanding of sort of data engineering mindset? With the governance, yes. Like I think with governance, we've been in a better place than Admiral has ever been. We bake things in. And again, our engineers think about it because they want the best kudos for their bit of code, right? So the only way you're going to do that is get people actually using it 
and using what the output of that code has produced. Now, if you've got good governance that has put that into a data catalog, because you've coded that up or it's automatic or whatever, then people will find that data and they'll use it. Okay. And this is another thing about probably dovetails into like the working in silos. You develop something for a specific thing. I know it has to happen sometimes, but if you can write it so that it's open-ended and basically other people from outside the intended recipient can see it in the data catalog within reason, they're allowed to see it and all that, okay, the security and stuff like that. They can discover through a data catalog and basically go, oh, I didn't realize someone had done that, calculated that over there. Oh, I'll go and use that. Okay. And then they attribute to the data catalog themselves by saying, I am using this for this purpose. That kind of mentality then grows because everyone used to see data governance as like a blocker. Okay. But essentially, there's ways and means of doing it where you can bake it into that whole delivery process and actually make it an enabler and not a blocker. I think it took a lot of companies a long time to understand that because I think they just thought of it as a regulatory thing and, oh, we've got to do this. We're ticking boxes here and there and stuff like that. But I think you do it properly. And it is so valuable and, you know, it can aid operational efficiency. People have got better decision making because the quality of the data has increased. I used to go into meetings and some guy used to go, well, this is what we sold this product for yesterday. And another guy would go, well, that don't match my figures. And you're like, well, who's right? Okay. And now with this data governance, you've got a gold standard. And now you've got the guy going, I got these figures. Oh, well, I got these figures and they're different, but mine have a tick on them okay they've been checked they've been gold standard this is actually what happened the other guy's got no response against that so and this is the type of things that it can enable but i think it takes a while for people to see that because they do see it still as a blocker but if you know data and you know how it's used you can really see the advantages of having that strong governance and i think what you're saying there as well is that that actually just the quality of the reporting across an organization and also out to customers will be better because you know that you're using correct data and you're using it in the right way and that it's standardized. It's not just the reporting. You look at the AI and the machine learning and the data scientists and things like that. It used to be they'd have this, I just want all data all the time, as quick as you can, all data, raw format, and I want as much data as you can give me and things like that. And I think the emphasis is slowly drifting away from that now to actually go, no, I want quality data. Because if you're training your models on bad data, you're going to get bad decisions, okay? So I think the emphasis has now moved from give me as much data as you can to just give me clean data. And I think that's an important step because I don't think I could say that to you two years ago, but I think now there's a machine learning model for everything, right? I don't think anyone's really pushing the boundaries of machine learning yet. Don't get me wrong, in Admiral, we have custom ones and things like that. And probably data scientists, if they heard this in Admiral, they'd probably start have a few choice words for me. But to be honest, you know, someone else has done it. Someone else has done something very similar somewhere. You can pretty much buy a model off the shelf okay and everyone's doing it. it's all like self-service you know i can go on to google's marketplace and i could buy loads of models of get 
the result I want. What the difficult thing is the data engineering to get the data quality up to a level when you can train that model. And I think that's where the emphasis has changed there as well. So it's not just the reporting, it's definitely for other applications as well. So with the teams that you've got there, it sounds like obviously there's a sort of sharing of knowledge and sharing of code. And you've obviously done a project and Red Olive have been involved with it. What's it been like working with kind of external consultants? Has that challenged the thinking? Has it kind of steered the project? You definitely learn from them because at the end of the day, we're still quite immature in some ways in Admiral's cloud journey. You know, things take a long time and things like that. And you need that external support you know, you need good people who have basically done this before and know what the pitfalls are. You're still in charge, but you're in charge of the outcomes. These are the outcomes I have, okay? It needs to work like this. People like Red Olive as well, you know, they come in, they're classic engineers, you know, they're trained in first principles, okay? And they will go, well, James, if you do it like that, then that could break there. So that's great advice. And so they're thinking the same, okay, which is fantastic. They don't have to educate them in robustness and maintenance and things like that. You just learn a lot from them. You know, you go, oh, okay, well, we did something similar for a couple of guys, you know, two years ago that did this. Would that work? And it's just bringing that experience to it because cloud is an experience. And you really have to, like, sort of think differently and especially – when you're on-prem, you design for performance, right? And when you get to cloud, you're actually designing for cost because it's so easy to just, you know, throw another 100 processes at it and a shed load of memory. But there's a cost implicated with that. So you still got to be super efficient because otherwise those costs can run out of control and things like that. And it's good that our external consultants and things like that, they've all fed into that. They've gone, well, you could do it this way. It's robust. It's really good, but it'll cost you this. And you have to figure that out. And that can be very difficult. But having people that have done it and things like that, that can really guide you essentially on that design from a cost perspective and also from a robustness perspective. And it's a balance, isn't it? So, yeah, they'd be really good. Although we've been talking data, we've actually been talking about communications and people throughout this. For people who are now coming into the data industry, what skills would you recommend that they have? Or what kind of things would you be looking for for somebody joining the industry now? To be honest, right, we take on a lot of grads, a lot of young people that may want to get into this sort of thing. The key skill, or two key skills I'll put down from a technical perspective, SQL and Python. Because pretty much everything runs off those two things, right? Or is interfaced with them in some means. But what we really look for is you can teach those skills, okay? If you've got, you know, a bit of a mathematics or a science background or things like even if you haven't, but you know how an Excel spreadsheet works, you know how to look through it, you know how to organize data and things like that. Those are the key sort of technical skills we look for, but we look for behaviors and we do a lot of competency-based type interviews where we look at you know give us an example of a time when something went wrong and that may not be in data or the business could be something completely external but we look at the mindset about how people handle it so there's a little bit of psychology in there and things like that but what we're looking for is people who are conscientious who care about what they're actually doing 
and that's important. So all the technical stuff, right? You can learn. You could go on a hundred YouTube's there, right? Okay, and and you can know concepts better than us. But when it actually comes to implementing it and your day to day job, I think your psychology and how you made up is a lot to do with it. So we we do look for a lot of people who are very driven, as I said, conscientious. They really care about what they're doing. And you can make a really good start to mold them into a classic data engineer. So that's what we look for. My last question for you, what is the most exciting thing that you're most passionate about for the data kind of pushing forward into the future? Data automation. Because I know we've talked about machine learning and AI and things like that. And those things are great and very impressive and things like that. But I think unless you're one of the top players, they can be very difficult to implement on scale. But what I'm interested in at the moment is a lot of metadata, sort of data-driven pipelines, whereby rather than deploying code, you're making more configuration changes and things like that. So it's the automation of it all from a delivery point of view. I like the idea of some people have had a go, Wearscape being one of them. They're really good. But there needs to be a next level. So when we're talking about, we've spoken about things like governance, data cataloging and things like that, that type of thing needs to kind of happen automatically. So we talk about automation in terms of automated testing or automated deployments and things like that. But what about actually automating the actual development? Because a couple of years ago, a lot of people just hand coding things. And there's a lot of now sort of low code solutions where you still need to have the technical ability and know what's going on underneath, but you can template a lot of it. So I can automatically template that it adds, I'm bringing new data in, it adds to this data catalog or I publish a report automatically gets added to this data catalog and things like that. So that's what I'm really interested in because everyone goes after the really exciting stuff and things like that, but nobody thinks about the implementation so much because I live in that space. And all my problems have been in that space. That's what I kind of get excited about now. Can I have a team of three people that can deliver something in, say, a month rather than a team of 10 deliver it in six months? And that's kind of where I'm going at the moment because we're up to our eyeballs at work and it never stops. And you can only grow so much before it becomes hard to manage. But if we can deliver quicker and automate more and and maintain our quality standards and our governance standards and things like that. That's what excites me. Now, that may be a bit of a boring answer, but that's the honest truth. A fascinating take from James on the importance of people, teamwork and communications in data projects. Join us for the next episode of Fibonacci, the Red Olive Data Podcast, where we'll be joined by another data expert sharing their thoughts on the latest trends in AI and big data, along with some great hints and tips. Make sure you subscribe to Fibonacci, the Red Olive Data Podcast, from wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss it. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Nikki Rudd. See you next time.